Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, episode number 25? 26? 26. SOS 26, David. 24? It's one of these. 26. You're right. 26. Yeah, let's 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 do it, David. Yeah, Gospel of Mark. Yes, the Gospel of Mark. So uh, on Thursdays we read something and discuss it. This week we're going through the Gospels of Jesus, as mm-hmm. appeared in the New Testament of a little book you might have heard of called the Bible. <laughs> and we're on the second Gospel. I've never read them. You studied them in your youth. Uh, I figured a lot of people talk about God. But I don't think a lot of people actually read the Bible. Do you think there's some truth to that? Yeah, there there is. And even those, they, they say they do. Uh, but they read maybe a verse here and a verse there. They don't really read it all the way through. Uh, it's not like a normal book. And also, uh, they don't, even more people don't study the Bible. Yeah. You know, at all. Well, I do remember seeing a piece uh, on the news about this weird sect of people, probably in Texas. I'm not sure. This is years ago. I'm sure it was in the American South. That there's a verse in Mark that says, They shall handle serpents, and they'll get bit, and due to their faith, they shall not die. Or It says something like that. You know what I mean. I don't have the example. Yeah, they will handle, yeah, they'll handle. They they hold snakes around. They're, they're going to get bit. They're 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 protected because of their faith. Yeah. Yes. So there's a sect, a Pentecostal sect in the American South, and they take that one little passage of the Bible, and they build their whole worship around it. And you go there, you know, you think you're going to be here in hell's fire and brimstone past the collection plate. Next thing you know. There's a reticulated python <laughs> draped around your neck. And you're like, I don't know if I signed up for this. And they say, yes, this is what Christianity is all about. Read the Bible. There is one line in there. And we're going to take that line and basically make our our little enclave of Christianity about that one line in the Book of Mark. And that do you think that happens quite a bit? Well, not that. Uh, that happens. <laughs> but I think... Those kinds of things happen quite a bit. Uh, I think they happen a lot, pretty much uh, in almost every church. Every church will have their set patch passages that they 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 wrap their their doctrine around, or, or their liturgy around, or their their confessions around. So they'll have their own. It's fascinating. Every, every church is a little bit different. See, I don't I don't go to church, but. I got into watching uh, cope compilations of people unable to cope with the fact that Donald Trump lost the election. And there was a lot of pastors, televangelists, shysters, hucksters. And they said, I prophesy Donald Trump. The Lord is telling me he will win the election. And then he loses and they say, well, he did win the election. And uh, where was I going with this? I I had a, a point. It's just so early in the morning and it's so snowy outside, it's hard for me to keep my train of thought. But, oh yeah, so I started watching a lot of these uh, televangelists and they're crazy. And they'll get up there and they'll say, uh, God, God knows what's good and what's evil. And what God thinks is the most evil thing in the world is two men engaging in homosexual relations. And in the book of Mark, which I just read yesterday, Jesus says the most important commandment is the first commandment. Thou shalt have no gods other than me. And, you know, he's asked to recount the commandments. And he's like, that's the one to be faithful to God. And because it's inconvenient for a televangelist, they say the most important commandment is don't be a homosexual. And it's like, that's not even a commandment. That's not even one of the ten. It's fascinating that they just pick and choose what they want, and that becomes the doctrine. When if you read the gospel, the doctrine is not that, not what they're saying. <laughs> uh-huh. It's, I, yeah. just, I find that fascinating. Yep. 
But the reason they do that is because people believe them. Yes. The reason why they preach about how they have a prophecy that God came to them in a dream and said Trump will be president is because it's not about teaching people about Christianity. It's about keeping those dollars coming in. And if you did what we do, if you did a teleconference and you pull up scripture and you discuss, what do you think this means? What do you think that means? What do you think this means? I think they're parishioners. Their eyes would glaze over and they'd say, this is boring. I'm going to switch to a different televangelist who claims he can heal me and who says Donald Trump was sent from God, because that's what I want to hear. But if you look at the works of Jesus, I've only read two of the Gospels so far. But his whole ministry was telling people things they didn't want to hear. That's right. Was saying things, it's like, wow, I wasn't expecting to hear that, and pissing people off. That's right. Because he wouldn't hold back. Jesus did not hold back. He says, look, this is what you need to know. And uh, I think we need more we need more of those kind of people around mm -hmm. telling the truth, whether it's good or bad, whether you like it or you don't like it, tell the truth. That's what Jesus did. And the, and in telling the truth, uh, he did not attack the poor. He attacked uh, the people who empower. And it wasn't about even even people who were rich. Uh, it, 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 he attacked people who were uh, who were uh, uh, unauthentic. They were not real. They, I mean, they 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 were self. Actually, they they were. Uh, uh, they well, the term is sin. Sin just means you go against God. They didn't worship God. They worshipped themselves, or they worshipped some other god. Like it says, no other gods before you. Yeah. And he didn't pull any punches either. He he says like. You're you're an empty sepulcher, yeah. So you wanted to start. I, well, well, quickly, let's talk about me. I'm wearing my camel hair jacket today. Well, let's read the first few verses. Because if we read the first few verses, look at verse six, one six, and John was clothed with camel hair. And with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. Hey, David, what kind of coat do you have on? Camel hair. <laughs> Let's see your camel hair coat. And I'm not, I'm not wearing a girdle of skin about my loins. But that's off camera, so it doesn't matter. And I didn't eat wild <laughs> locusts and honey for breakfast, but I did have Greek gods yogurt. I know that we're supposed to have no other gods before God, according to Jesus. But I had Greek gods yogurt, delicious stuff, honey vanilla. So there's the honey. And I put some blueberries on it, and they kind of, if you squint, look a little bit like locusts. <laughs> there you go. I don't know, locusts, I just pulled up a picture of locusts. They don't really look like blueberries at all. Well, if you squint really bad, yeah. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, well, you look pretty good in that camel hair coat, though. Yeah, I feel like John the Baptist. Yeah. Well, uh, it says the skin around their waist. Uh, I have the New American Standard here, and it says, uh, uh, and John was clothed with camel's hair, just like David, and wore a leather belt hmm. around his waist. So that's the interpretation of New American Standard. So, a leather belt sounds a little bit better to me than a girdle of skin about his loins. <laughs> a girdle of skin. Whoa. <laughs> Okay, so uh, did you want to start off with the first, about yeah, the, the yeah, voice crying the, in the wilderness? Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Actually, this, if you if you read, if you actually read Mark from the beginning of the end, I haven't I haven't read it recently, but back when, uh, the uh, the phrase Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. That is a recurring theme throughout Mark. And so Mark really, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have a little bit different uh, uh, emphasis in their book. And the Mark has the Son of God emphasis. It just Son of God is really pushed, pushed, pushed. And some people say, okay, uh, he is the, the, 
God incarnate. And so they focused on the incarnate uh, God and the, the person of Jesus. But uh, the next few verses, uh, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And these next two verses, David, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, verse 3. Uh, uh, when I was my dad's store, Sequoia, we're sons of Sequoia, he owned uh, the Harper's Friendly Food Store. And uh, when he bought it, I was like in kindergarten, first grade, and they wanted to put me in a, in a daycare. And I said, I, didn't want, I did not want to be in a daycare. I want to be with you. And so I grew up in a grocery store. And a lot of people look at that and go, oh, well, you didn't grow up in a home. I said, no, I had a home. I was with my parents all day long. I loved it. And my mother would tell me about the store, about the cash register. My dad would show me about the butcher. He was a butcher. I, I just loved it. It was like it was like it was a dream come true for a little kid because I learned so much. And my dad would let me do things in the back in the motor room. Uh, I would play with the motors. <laughs> uh, he didn't know it, but I did. But the point is, uh, they would wake me up in the morning and take me to the store. And then uh, I had to have breakfast before I went to school, first grade through sixth grade. We, they had the stores six, seven years. And so uh, there is a lady across the street. I don't know what her name is, but I called her Grandma Turley. And she wasn't my grandma, but I called her Grandma Turley because she was an older lady. Anyway, so she says, Mike, I go across the street, down one house, uh, and it's an old, it was an old shack. I says, he says, go across the street and go to Grandma Turley. She has breakfast for you. So I would always go and she would always fix me pancakes and butter and syrup. I have pancakes every single morning when I was in grade school. That's awesome. But every time I would, and also it would be cold. I'd run across there and I was cold. And she had this little furnace, this little, little propane kind of furnace, you know, that fire, open fire, you know. And she'd give me this, uh, the uh, uh, braided rug, a little little rug about that big. And so I'd always hold it in front of the fire while she was getting the breakfast ready. She says, okay, Mike, come on in. I'd come in. Of course, she only that's the only heat she had in that house, by the way, that little furnace in the front room. And that's where her bed was. And there was only a two-room house. That's all it was. And then, and then the kitchen was like an extension. And so I run in. I put it down and I jump on it because it would warm up my, my bottom <laughs> and I'd eat my, okay. The whole point of this is every single morning I'd come in the same time. And every time I would knock on the door, she'd open the door and says, come on in, Michael. And I'd walk in and, and show me the verse again, David. Okay. Every single morning I heard on the radio. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I heard that every morning, <laughs> first grade through sixth grade, and she would have that on the radio. Interesting. There was like a local Oklahoma DJ that would preach the oh, gospel. She'd, and then they'd, they'd, they'd have a sermon every morning, and uh, she would do that for me every morning. And I would, they would always start with that, and then they would preach. But my parents opened the store at eight, so at eight o'clock, that's when I went over to uh, and it, and school didn't start till like nine or something, or maybe seven or eight. I don't know what the times were, but I'd be over there at the same time every morning, and they'd always have the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, and then the guy would preach, and that was in the living room, and so I would be warming my little <laughs> little pad up while this guy was preaching. Uh, hellfire and brimstone, mm -hmm. and then I go in and sit and have my breakfast. So every time I hear that, I think of that little old shack that I had breakfast on. And by the way, my dad, Sequoia, uh, I never knew this till like till sixth grade. We he sold the store and we we, we did other things. Uh, but then I think I was a teenager and I was talking to my mother, and uh, and she said, "Oh yeah, Grandma Turley, and how's she doing?" We we kept in contact with her. 
a nice, nice, nice lady. Anyway, he says, yeah, well, you know, uh, she didn't have any money. Uh, she was poor. Uh, but my dad went over to her and said, you know, could you do a favor for me? I go, oh, sure, Mr. Harper. He says, could you feed my son every morning breakfast? And she goes, uh, yeah. And she says, I'll just bring, I'll bring food over so you can feed him every morning. But he would bring food to her uh, every morning. And it wasn't just to feed me. He gave her food every single day. And so he gave her food. And so she never had to buy food. He, he, he had a store and it was fine with him if he could take that food and make sure she always had food in her house so she could eat. Mm-hmm. And she never had to buy food. She didn't have money. But, but he, he kept her. One old lady, but he kept her with food. That's cool. And, uh, and then she fed me every morning. And I, I never knew that. But my dad would do things and not tell people. Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to him who knew. It mattered to him that he did it. Mm-hmm. That's that's all that mattered. And he didn't he didn't want praise. He wanted to do things. Anyway, so that verse has special meaning to me. And I'm sure you go through the Bible, these verses might have special meaning to everyone. Yeah. And that's why the, the Bible has a lot of meanings. And I bet that meaning uh, doesn't have the same meaning and the same memory to anybody. Mm-hmm. But me, it's like a song lyric or something, you know, same as a song. The songs are forever. The Bible is centuries old. Songs are old. Songs will last, too. Well, I was struck by how similar the books of Matthew and Mark are. Yeah, I, of course, they're telling the same story. Do you think there's an element of. There's no historical record, really, of Jesus. You, there's, you can't find his tomb. You can't find his bones. He didn't build a great city like King David did. So one way to legitimize Jesus' place on earth is to have multiple people verify the story. Right. If it's just the Gospel of Matthew and Mark doesn't chime in and say, oh, I was there too, and these stories happened, and like, oh, wait. I remember these stories. They were just in the last book. But it's like, oh, there's another guy vouching for, yeah, all this stuff happened. He broke the loaves and fishes. He he did all this. St- so repetition sort of legitimizes Jesus's miracles. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. That's prob- probably true. And that's very logical. Uh, and that's very tr- that's probably true because it's very logical. Uh, because Mark Mark was not an apostle, you know, he, he wrote the book out later, but he was with the apostles, obviously, because he knew what they did. Mm-hmm. And probably the story, the legacy that Jesus left right after he died was stories, stories and stories. He did this. He did this. He did this. And again, they remember the stories because he taught in parables. Notice a lot of what they remember, are the parables. Mm-hmm. And they're the same parables. With the same, yeah, they're the same. Now, do you feel like I also get this from Mark and Matthew? He tells the parable of the sower. You throw the seeds. Some land on the rocks. Some land on the thorns. Some land in fertile ground. And that's sort of like preaching the word of God. You know, some people won't even hear it. Some people will hear it and they'll take up root quick and then they'll die because it's like they just want to be inspired in the moment. They don't really want to live that way. And then other people they'll like. You know, pull it into themselves, and then what will spring from that will be a hundredfold or whatever. So you'll invest those words in your life, and it'll pay you back. That's the parable, essentially, right? I'm getting that basically right, aren't I? You're, abs- you're right. You're right, David. And the thing is, he tells this, the, he'll throw seeds here, he'll throw seeds there, he'll throw seeds on fertile ground, and they'll grow a hundredfold. And that's all that he says to the people. But then you sort of get this, like, backstage pass where he explains it to his apostles. Right. And would you have gotten that out of the story had they not included the part in the Bible where he explains what he means to his disciples? Uh, I think, I think, no. No, I think uh, you'll get close to it. But people will interpret it according to their lives. And, uh, 
and he says this is this is what I mean and once that once he interprets his parables then they see what he was teaching mm-hmm. but then what he teaches is one thing and then how they apply that they'll always remember that with his teaching see yeah so the point is he, he here, here's what I see here's what I think he explains his parables to his disciples so that they can understand what he is telling them so they can go forward and teach others because they were disciples mm-hmm. they were disciplined he doesn't explain it to the multitudes because he wants them to he wants them to take that parable and change their own lives not necessarily teach others but change their lives mm-hmm but his disciples is going to pass it on. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just kind of the, the impression that I get. Well, I see it like song lyrics, too. Uh, let's take uh, any song. In the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make by the Beatles. Yeah. Hearing that in the song. In the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. You know, instrumental fade out. That's much more powerful than John Lennon or Paul McCartney sitting there telling you what that means. <laughs> That's right. So I do think that keeping it vague and allowing people room for interpretation, it actually possesses more power than literally telling people what something means. It does. For example, you just, you just, had, you just uh, told, talked about his interpretation. Like some seeds, they'll they'll hear it and then it'll they'll ignore it. Some they'll hear it, they'll they'll crop up and then they'll go away and the the, the sun will they'll dry up. Other people will go ten, five, ten, a hundred fold, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I hear that. When I hear that story, I get that image, and then it brings to my mind my experiences. Like back in the '60s, I was talking to this young I was in college and I was talking to this high school kid and he says oh could you tell me about Jesus tell me about Jesus I want to learn about Jesus is okay so I was telling him about Jesus about uh, how to be saved and everything and he goes oh yeah and he says and I said do you want to be saved do you want to do this he goes yeah 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 and so I, I started explaining to him okay well then make a commitment and it, he goes and the kid goes, oh, I, I don't want to do that. I just want to be a Jesus person. And I go, what? You know? And then I realized he didn't want to commit his life to something. He just want to be identified as, as a title of a Jesus person. Yeah. But he didn't want to commit his life to it. And that's part of the seed. On the other hand, uh, through the 60s and all this stuff, and I was doing all my stuff, and I was and I was uh, telling people about Jesus and changes in their lives and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I was witnessing. I was witnessing and say, you know, do you want to receive Christ? Yes, I do. I went away for, I don't know, five years or so. I came back 10 years later, and David, I went to the same church that I went to back when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, we have a visitor. And 10 years later, uh, some of those people are gone, you know. And so they go, yeah, I said, I'm Mike Harper. I've been here before, uh, but I just came to visit. It's nice to see everyone. And I see that the pastors changed. I was here when Pastor Bill Fletcher was here. Uh, and then uh, and then all the people kept turning around looking at me, you know, because I was, I was there for a long time ago. Anyway, after church was over with, uh, uh, a guy come up about my age, he comes up to me, and he says, you're Mike Harper. You're Mike Harper. I said, yeah. And he says, I'm your grandson. I said, your grand- my grandson? He says, yeah, I'm your grandson. I go, what do you mean? He says, well, when you went to school, you led this person to Christ. And he led me to Christ. And every time I got with him, he told me stories about you. And because of me, because of my life, because of my life got together, and I have the life I have today with my children, and I tell my children about 
who led me to Christ, and I tell him about Mike Harper, who led him to Christ, and it made my life what it is today, and I'm telling my children uh, what their lives are today. So I am your grandson, my, your spiritual grandson. Parable of sowers. You sow your seed. I did do nothing to do all that in his life. All I did was lead this one person and help this one person, and that just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And you, and so how could you tell a story like that and remember it? No one's going to remember what I just said. Mm-hmm. But with this parable of the sower, if something like that happened to them, they'll always remember it. Yeah. And I've remembered that there was this 40 years later. And I remember that. I go, wow. You know, well, God bless you. Yeah. He goes, yeah, my life is what it is today because of what you did back then to a person that you didn't even know me. So when you do good and throw the seeds, go through good seeds, you don't know how far they go. There's going to be good out there that you will never know. Is that okay? And that should be okay with you. There's a tally in heaven. Anyway, I don't want to preach. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I guess I just did. I told a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, but that's what happens. They'll read the Bible and take like a parable, and then a preacher will preach on that parable. And everyone says, oh, yeah, the parable. They probably didn't even read it. Yeah. They probably didn't even read it. They just heard someone talk about it. You know, it's like when someone talks about the news and you can tell they're saying something they heard on Fox News or MSNBC. And it's like, yeah. I've heard I've heard this before. I've heard this. Someone said this and it sort of yeah. becomes consensus. And I think that in a lot of denominations. Uh, consensus becomes doctrine. I remember I listened to a, This American Life about this preacher. He was an evangelical preacher in the South. And he had this epiphany one morning that hell is not real, that we're living in hell. <laughs> That's why there's so much suffering and and badness in the world. And through our deeds, we work to get to heaven after death. But the world is so bad, so many bad things happen because we're living in hell. And he started, started saying, I had... A revelation. God came to me. He told me this. And he got excommunicated from his past because <laughs> it wasn't prosperity doctrine. It wasn't give us money and you'll go to heaven. It was, yeah. I'm thinking slightly different. And they're like, no, you can't think different. Jesus, sir, didn't think different, did he? <laughs> uh, yeah, he did. <laughs> Jesus was, that's why people followed him because he spoke. And, and that both gospel, actually all the gospels, uh, Jesus, he says, you teach differently than the scribes and Pharisees. You don't teach the same. And I think what how he taught was was very practical. It wasn't pie in the sky stuff. It was practical. It's something that they could identify with and they could understand because mm-hmm. he because Jesus knew people. And uh, so it's, and that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and other 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 people wrote other gospels. It's not in the canon of scripture, but that's why they wrote it down because they remembered Jesus because he was so practical, and it was so real. There's and, a gospel uh, it, of Judas. Did you know that? Yeah, there's there's a gospel of Thomas. Gospel. Yeah, there's all kind of gospels. I never read so the gospel people, of Judas, but what if it was like. Either. I was the only one that protected him, and all the other 11 sold him out. And they conspired to make me the bad guy afterward. Because Judas yeah. really, he takes the fall. And Peter, Simon Peter, denying him three times or whatever. And the interesting thing is, why? The stories are so similar, do biblical scholars find a reason why Mark's telling of the story is important when it's the same story as Matthew told. Oh, yeah, I think so, because then it's real. Uh, But more than that, I think that's how they selected the canon, 
back in the Council of Trent or whenever it was back in the 1500s or whatever. I, I, I shouldn't have said that because I don't remember exactly what the dates are. When they actually put the Bible together, mm-hmm. in other words, they had all these scriptures. Uh, and so they had a, they, they I think it was a count, I want to say Council of Trent. I'll Google I don't it. think that's right. But they, they selected, this is the canon of scripture. And some were included and some were excluded. This is, there's reasons why it's in and reasons why it's out. So that one council, uh, man determined what's in here. Now, they say it's inspired by God. And so they, they feel like they were inspired in selecting which transcripts go in here. See, and uh, and um, so way back when, when they put this together, uh, they selected the ones that they wanted to go in here. So they had they had guidelines that they used. Council of Trent, uh, mid 1500s. There we go. It was in response to the the Protestant Reformation. Although it it seems like wouldn't the Gutenberg Bible have been printed 1545? Let's look at the Gutenberg Bible. When would that have been printed? Fourteen fifties. Forty nine Gutenberg Bibles have survived from the fourteen wow. fifties. They're thought to be among the world's most valuable books. That's pretty cool. So I don't know. I mean Here we go. I found one here. It says the Muratorian canon, which was believed to date 200 AD, is the earliest compilation of uh, a canonical text, text resembling the New Testament. It was not until the 5th century that all the different Christian churches came to a basic agreement on biblical canon. So that that's kind of what I remember. It was the 5th century, something like that. Okay. That's a thousand years before the Council of Trent. Yeah. Uh, I think... Oh, here it is. Yeah, yeah. So the point is, the point is they they had all these these manuscripts, and so over the centuries, uh, they would say, "This is the Bible. This is the Bible. This is the Bible." Well, the last one I think Council of Trent was the last one that said, "Okay, this is it," and it hasn't changed since. <laughs> mm-hmm. They keep adding and subtracting and adding and subtracting and this kind of thing. And uh, so when you start studying uh, the origin of the Bible and how we got the Bible, I think a lot, a lot, a lot of Christians have no concept and no, didn't hear at all uh, about how we got the Bible. Mm-hmm. Because pre- even preachers don't even know. Uh, they, they maybe have heard it once, uh, but they disregard it. In other words, they say, Oh, this Bible is inspired by God, and God gave it to us. That's all they say. Well, when you look at the history of it, it says, well, maybe so. But hey, there's a long history of these words. Yeah, and it was and written by gone through all different people and gone through so many different uh, revisions—not revisions, but uh, cycles. It was written by men, also. I think that's kind of important to remember. It wasn't mm-hmm. written by. God. Mark wasn't a god, right? Well, they all. Well, see, they say again. I've heard you've heard different versions, but whoops. Uh, you uh, uh, you hear different versions, but uh, uh, what they say is that. Um, uh, it's the, di- divinely inspired. When they choose, when they chose the canon, that was divinely inspired. When they wrote it, that was divinely inspired. So it's inspired by God. So these are the words of God because God worked through man. Mm-hmm. And know? and so it's interesting that certain stuff was left out of canonical literature. That stuff often does not get studied by anyone unless they're. A scholar of arcane ancient text. Well, seminary, 
the, the different seminaries will study the the different uh, the Maccabees and the different canons that mm-hmm. were not that never got made the canon of scripture. But there are different manuscripts that they study it. Have you yeah. ever read any non-canonical scriptures? Uh, yeah, a long time ago, I looked. I think the the book of Th- Thomas. I read that. Uh, I think one other. I can't remember. Maybe once ago, and 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 actually, some of them have. I I can't remember which book it was. One of them had miracles of Jesus uh, when he was a child. Ah. So it wasn't just loaves and fishes and walking on water, healing the sick. No, when he was a child, when he was like six years old or eight years old, he did this miracle, you know. So they had that. And so, and the argument that I heard, I don't know if this is true or not, they got, well, you know, that really doesn't apply to the doctrine. Hmm. It addresses the person of Jesus that he did miracles when he was a child. But because in the scripture, the canon of scripture that we have, uh, the earliest part is he was born. The next time we knew him, he was 12 years old, 12 years old in the synagogue uh, 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 teaching them about Scripture because he yeah. knew the Scripture. He was and owning then, uh, them, right? Owning the owning the he Pharisees. Owned he owned them because he knew he knew Scripture inside and out. He was a smart, smart guy. So but he must have been able to read, right? Or did he just know Scripture by osmosis? Uh, well, people will say, you don't know. You don't know for sure. People will hypothesize. So but some of these other books, uh, they have other books have things, but I don't know, but I've heard it said that, oh, yeah, but that doesn't apply to doctrine. The Canada Scripture should be here for doctrine. Uh, and so, yeah, but look at look at the Old Testament. Look at, look at uh, Exodus and Judges and, and uh, Kings. That's history. Uh-huh. Maybe this should be history. That's the arguments they had in the councils. You know? the, fasc- the fascinating thing to me is that I think the reason why they did that, and this is just my back-of-the-envelope calculation, is that who put the canon together and who excluded stuff from the canon? The church. So what are they going to choose? Stuff that sort of leads you to believe that you need a church. Because the church is the arbiter of the decision-making. So where do they start, essentially? They start with his birth. And then fast forward, Matthew and Mark anyway. And the thing is, people are going to get bored. They'll read Matthew and Mark, and they'll be like, ah, I need to read Luke and John. I got the gist. Mark is a lot like Matthew. They start when he starts his ministry. When he yeah. goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's tempted by Satan. And he comes back, and he says, let me get a band of disciples together and start my ministry and go out. So... What does that tell you? The church values ministry. Right. So that's going to be the focus of what they choose to tell about Jesus was his ministry. That's right. It's, that's I, right. There's a and little that's bit of... A very, that's a strong argument, Dave, a very strong argument. And uh, there's no way to prove it, but that's a strong argument. So it's a little self-serving how they chose the books. Because if you believe that the Gospel of Thomas when he's telling about miracles, Jesus. But Thomas was one of his disciples, right? Yeah. Well, no. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. So how would he have known that Jesus did miracles in his youth? Someone told him. Because he was... Well, see, all all that's recorded in the Bible is what Jesus told his disciples was his ministry. Mm -hmm. Well, he was with them for three years. He... Do I tell you stories about when I was a kid? I just did. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Jesus told them stories when he was a kid. Yeah, because they they were they were uh, they were a team. They were partners. They 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 came together and they were gonna they were a team on uh, of of this ministry. So they they talked. They spent time together. When you spend time together, you tell stories about when you're a kid. And they probably told stories, uh, told Jesus stories when they were a kid. Mm-hmm. When you spend time with people, you start telling about who you are. I mean, that's just logical. But we don't have that in Scripture because, just like you said, the Scripture is about the, the church, yeah. about, the, about the institution of the church, 
not necessarily another argument would be it's the institution of this church not necessarily the ministry of the church but only the ministry to establish the institution mm -hmm. in other words i remember when i was in church they say you know why don't we just read the bible why do we have to come to church well you have to come to church because and they said why we have the bible read the bible learn the bible why do we have to come to church? Why do we have to pay money to the church to be told what the Bible says? I'll read it. Mm -hmm. And I even had people raise their hand in church. I remember this at the University Baptist Church. They said, yeah, I, I, I trust my husband because he's he he knows more about the Bible than than my Sunday school teacher. I'll listen to him before I listen to the Sunday school teacher. And I remember that lady. She was really cool. But the point is, it's about the institution. What's fascinating, too, is I think that you find find in a church a lot of parishioners or attendees that are more pious than church leadership. They are. They definitely are. Absolutely. And they actually have a firmer understanding of the teachings of Jesus than church leadership. Some of them do. It, now, the church leaders might understand... There again, they may understand the letter of the law, put it that way. But some of the people, some of the congregation, they live it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the a lot of the people who pro, who are preachers, or elders, or priests, they don't necessarily live it. But other people do, and that's why Jesus said, and Jesus taught it. See, Jesus would blast those people if Jesus were here today. He would blast most of the churches, <laughs> all denominations, you know. And uh, you'll be—I remember uh, with my group, I said, you know, uh, when I started thinking about this and looking at this and stepping back and looking at a broader picture, I go, you know, we're going to be surprised. My dad used to say this too, and I understand what he means now. We're going to be surprised who we see in heaven. And who we don't see in heaven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're going to be surprised. Like, what? You know, you weren't even a Christian. Maybe not on the outside, but on the inside I was. Yeah. You'll be surprised who we see up there. Because a lot of, a lot of Christianity is not necessarily based on what Christ did. It's based on what man did about his life. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you feel about these? This is one thing that I that was impressed upon me. We watched, because I told you we've been watching, uh, you know, psychics that fail and prophets that fail. And we inevitably got into some of these huckster televangelists that claim they can heal diseases. And they put their hands on their parishioners and they say, you know, Down syndrome, I command you in the name of the Lord to rearrange the chromosomes so that you don't have Down syndrome anymore. And it's not going to work. <laughs> we know that. Now, when you look back at Jesus being able to clear, cure blindness and dumbness, do you just accept that as miracle? Because you know that there's no scientific way that someone could do that. He was able to do that because he was the Son of God, right? That's from Scripture. So... When uh, televangelists, I won't name names, but maybe, you know, a disciple of Oral Roberts claims he can cure your Down syndrome. And then he puts his hands on you in the church and says, be gone, extra 21st chromosome. Does he think he's God? He's acting like he thinks he's God, right? Well, he says the power of God, though. It's not his power. It's the power of God through him. Yeah, because he, because Jesus says, "I'm giving you power to heal the sick." So and if, his disciples went out to that. If a chromosomal analysis reveals that that poor girl with Down syndrome that has to go into the middle of the congregation and have his hands put on by the slimy preacher, if a chromosomal <laughs> analysis reveals that she still has three twenty-first chromosomes, that means that Kenneth Copeland doesn't really have any power given to him by God, right? 
<laughs> not in that case. No, because uh, his know. his argument is that girl she didn't have enough faith. Didn't have enough faith. Yeah. And it's a, an easy built-in argument. It just it incenses me. But one reason they're allowed to do it is that half of the New Testament is Jesus healing the sick. So that's a good way to get people to believe in your holiness. And, I mean, the difference between these televangelists and the stories that Jesus told is that Jesus actually healed the sick. He didn't just sell them a bill of goods. Right. But yeah. that's it's fascinating that here we are 2,000 years later, and slimy televangelists still think they can promise you cures for diseases that really only medical science can, can confront. Well, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, maybe we should do one more book, Acts, Acts of the Apostles. Because they do address that in Acts. Like, are these miracles going to go on? Or are they going to end? And so Acts uh, addresses that issue. So maybe after we get through uh, Luke, the physician Luke, and John, the holiness of God, the holiness of Christ, we get into Acts. So Acts is pretty interesting uh, because there is the beginning of the church. And uh, the thing of it is, is that there's a lot of opportunists out there. Yeah. They see the opportunity of, of building an empire, and they will do it. And I see these empires out there, and I go, oh, my goodness. Uh, Jesus addresses that, too. Uh, and I don't, I can't remember if he does it in Mark or Matthew, but Jesus says, look, uh, you are, you, he said in Matthew for sure, like, when you lead the least of these children wrong, then it'll be worse for you. Uh, be, be better that, that you would have a, oh, he says, cursed are you. The curse on you is going to be great when you led, lead the, the least of these astray. And all he's saying is, is that when you uh, uh, convince people to do this and this and this in my name, but you're not righteous, it's not righteous at all. It's, it's, you're just getting the money out of it. Mm -hmm. it says, you, you, have a, you have a greater penalty punishment uh, than anyone. I'm not saying it right, but you see I'm good, I'm getting at it. Yeah. So we're talking a lot about religion and not too much about scripture today. I noticed that. I noticed that. <laughs> but I think one of the reasons why, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the book of Mark is very similar to the book of Matthew. Would you agree with that? I would say there's similarities. Yeah, the, the parables are similar. Parables are similar. The stories that are told are similar. There's a few things in the book of Mark that aren't in the book of Matthew, and I should have like highlighted them so we could talk about them. But I also just think... It's telling the same story, and it's omitting some of the tales that Matthew told, because it's a shorter mm -hmm. book. And then it's mm -hmm. adding a couple tales, but they just sort of add uh, more evidence of Jesus' righteousness and divinity. And they, it's basically the same book. It's like how... Uh, like when they remake a movie, you know, it's the same story, just different actors. It's the same story, just different words with Mark. And I don't know if I got a clear picture of Mark has a different lesson than Matthew. I think they have the same lesson. The birth of Jesus, his preaching, his uh, sparring with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the betrayal of Judas, and the willingness of the Jews of Jerusalem to throw him under the bus, his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, those are all the main themes of both books. And if you take any lesson out of those books, it's those main themes. So they are very similar in that respect. They are, yeah. They're the same story, same thing. Uh, that gives legitimacy, but that's the storyline. Mm-hmm. But as you tell the storyline, Matthew says, see, 
this is king of the Jews. His, this is the royalty. Uh, and that's that's the person who did this. And then Mark says, see, this is the son of God. This is the humanity. This is the the son, the 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 son of God incarnate that he's doing this. And so you're not trying to. And then Luke will have a different view and John will have a different view. So it's the same person. That's why the storyline has to be the same because it's the same person. We're not talking about different people here. Mm -hmm. But this same person is more than just the story. It goes deeper into who this person was. And I think that's the differences when you start studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That, yeah, it's the same person. He did the same thing. But who was this person that did this? So they're addressing the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. not, ju not just what he did, but who he was. And at least that's the argument of the scholars when they talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is, that's four different perspectives that identifies the person of Jesus. Uh, and uh, and the deity of John's the deity of Jesus. Uh, Mark is the uh, humanity of Jesus. Uh, and then so each one will have their different perspective. Mm -hmm. That's the argument why there's four different gospels. The other gospels that are not part of the canon of Scripture, this canon, uh, it was uh, the arguments that I heard uh, way back when was that uh, they don't fit uh, into the person that this. They're the person of Jesus, but they don't fit into the doctrine that was trying to be laid out with this canon of Scripture mm -hmm. back in whatever the whatever the century was when they did it. I don't remember when the the final Scripture. Well, I remember the Council of Trent in the 16th century, but I guess beginning in the third or fourth centuries when they actually put these writings together. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I remember the third century A.D. The third century was the latest actual written uh, New Testament that they have. And they think the writings of these were like within the first century, but they've been rewritten, 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 rewritten. So we don't have originals. Yeah. There's no originals. They've been rewritten. So when they, re when they were rewritten, they'll see things in the margin, things were said differently and... And when they rewrite it, you can rewrite it. Oh, they mean this. And then they said, put something in there. They're not supposed to, but a lot of people did. Because you don't know what, who did this back in the second century, in the third century, in the fourth century. Well, yeah. I mean, you look at the Gutenberg Bible. That was printed in the 1400s, and only 49 copies remain. So something 1500 years earlier... Uh, I mean, we had a more established society, more established libraries... Uh, especially after the advent of the printing press, and yet we still only managed to keep 50 of the original copies of the Gutenberg Bible. But back then, it was written by the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. Mm -hmm. It was written by hand. These were scribes, and their whole life was just writing these things down and copying, copying. Uh, and so their whole life was making sure this was writing this down. That's all they did. Mm -hmm. What a life, huh? Yeah. I'm sure it beat some of the other vocations that were available to people back then. That, that's true. And actually, you probably live longer, too. Mm hmm But uh, so to me, that's a little bit why it's a little bit different. At least so, that's what I've heard. Yeah. And you read them when you read it with that perspective, you begin saying, oh, I see what they I see what they mean by that. I see what they mean. See, like this story right here in chapter 5, that was in Matthew too. <laughs> so I guess for me, it's like the stories are the same. And I, I felt like it's sort of like you go, you're a reporter and something happens and this is pre-cell phone. So there's no footage. There's no audio recordings. So how do you get the story? You go to people that were there, and you ask them what happened. And they all saw the same events. But you might get little tidbits and details about the story that give you a better picture of what happened. A, a better picture of the main people involved. And that's why you need four accounts. I mean, you could 
probably be benefited by having 20 accounts. Or all 12 disciples write a story about what they remember. I think it's I think it's more than just the account of what happened too. It's it's what you the meanings you got from that account and what you what you saw there. Mm -hmm. So you you take you take you take a person that does something, okay, something, whatever, like feed the multitudes or whatever. Will you take one person who is uh, a disciple that's been with Jesus the whole time? Another person that's been with Jesus just that one day. Another person that's never been with Jesus, but they see what they did. Those three people will have three different stories of what they saw. Mm -hmm. And the one that had been with Jesus say, he did this, and they will have what they knew about him in that story, even though they told the story. And the last person who just don't, did, didn't even know Jesus they're just literally, this is what I saw. Bang, 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 bang. And there was no more meaning to those words than just, just literal. Yeah. So it's the same story, but it's told in three different ways. I also, I felt like reading the book of Mark, and this is just my feeling. It was more concise than the book of Matthew. And it, it hit a lot of the same points. I think in terms of teaching someone about the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus, you read the long form story and then you read a shorter form story. And by the time you get done with the four gospels, you have a better understanding of the life of Jesus because you've read it in four different ways. And so you learn it in four different ways, even though it's the same story four times. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. As, yeah. a, as, a, right. as a learning tool, the four Gospels, yeah, Matthew could cover, hit all the main points. But it's not about hitting the main points. It's like reinforcing them with a different perspective. And so if you reinforce it, reinforce it, reinforce it, a Christian will read the Gospels and come out with a better understanding of the life of Jesus because he read all four Gospels. Mm -hmm. And you get, for example, a good example of what you're saying, at least... I don't know if it's good or not, but I think it's good. A good example is that you get a charlatan, uh, someone who's trying to make money, read the four, the, the, the four Gospels, and they'll pick the scripture that they're going to preach on so they can make money. Mm -hmm. Another person reads the four Gospels, and all they care about is making their lives better, making their family better, making their loved ones better, and they're going to see something very different from these Gospels. Yeah. Same thing when you look at a life of Jesus. And I'm not saying one's good and one's bad. There's four different perspectives of what they're seeing. I think another, going to say it that way. another example is you've been teaching the same courses for 30, 30 years now? 30. And you still 40. buy... We still buy books, I guess, yeah. But, you know, since the early 90s. 35. Yeah. Yeah. You still buy books. So you've been teaching undergraduate operations for 30 years. You'll still buy an operations management textbook and look through it. And it's like, you have a PhD. You don't need to buy an intro. The reason you look through it is to get a different perspective and maybe apply that new perspective from this book that you've never read to your students. And it's like, it's not like you need to know about operations management. Like, you have an advanced degree in it, and you've been teaching it for 30 years. But by seeing how someone else puts together the curriculum on how do you teach this to an undergraduate, it sort of allows you to get a perspective on how you're going to teach it to an undergraduate. That, that's, it's kind of like that, right? Absolutely. I get ideas of what other people think. Mm-hmm. How do you think? How do you think? I know the material. I probably know it better than some of those people do. Yeah. But how do you think? How would you approach this? How would you, you know, how you how you approach things? I see all the different. Everyone has something to contribute, and no matter how much you know about something, uh, there's always someone else out there who has a little different view that you can learn from. Never stop learning, man. Never stop learning no matter how much you know. And uh, 
rarely, rarely do pe do people say something that I don't I don't know uh, about what I teach all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes they'll have a perspective I never thought of. I go, well, I never thought of that. That's a good idea. Yeah. I learn from my students too. I learn from my students. I'll listen to them. They'll say things sometimes, and I see their 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 view, their perspective. Oh yeah, I never thought of it that way. That's a really good way to think of it. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're learning it. It's learning you're learning how to look at it differently. Mm -hmm. And and that variety helps you understand what you know better, and it helps you use what you know better. You never you should never stop learning, and you can learn from anybody and everybody. Well, you know what I've learned today. What's that? Camel hair is hot. <laughs> I'm sweating. Yes, it's not a bad thing to wear out in the wilderness, huh? But but the thing is, he's in the desert. And you had honey. And you had to, oh, he was in the desert, yeah. You know, John the Bat. I mean, maybe he wasn't in the desert, but it's not that cold in the Middle East. He was clearly in the Middle East. He's wearing camel hair. Is he crazy? <laughs> well, I'm sure it wasn't a coat like your coat. But, uh, I don't know. I don't know, but uh, Mark is a is a good book to read because it's short, mm -hmm. shorter, and he covers all the main points, and he talks about Jesus, talks about Jesus. Well, you you get a really good good view of. I think Mark's the kind of book you can read, and as you read it, or after you're done reading, you can think, what if I was there with him? He was an actual person that walked the earth. What if I was next to him? What would he say to me? If he looked at me and I looked at him and our eyes connected, I wonder what he would say to me. Mm -hmm. What would he ask me? What would he tell me? What would it be like to walk a day with Jesus and talk with him? Uh, I'll go to the park and just sit there and walk around. I'll take a hike on a trail. What would it be like just to sit there and talk with him? What would he say to me? I think the Mark's the kind of book where it's just this is who he is. Yeah. So so it's a it's a good book. Well, they're all the good books for different reasons, but Mark is a good book to read it and and get a gist of of who Jesus was as and, a person. And I may need to get an earlier start because Luke is tied with Matthew as the one that takes the longest to read. Okay. Well, Luke was a physician. He was a physician. He has a more, he has a whole different view <laughs> mm -hmm. of, of telling a story. And it's going to be a little bit more, uh, uh, I'd say, academic or more technical. Uh, but yeah, Luke is going to be a good book next next week. Yeah. Um, and whenever, any, whenever anyone is a physician, but it's like before... 1900. I don't really respect them all that much <laughs> for their uh, modern medicine. I, I just seen, I mean, even if you watch like one flew over the cuckoo's nest where they're giving people electroshock therapies and lobotomies, it's like, or bloodletting, you know, they put a bunch of leeches on Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s, you know, that's 2000 years after the, uh, and they still thought, you know, what would be a good idea to do to someone who just got shot? Put a bunch of leeches on his body. And that was the top physicians in America. So, I mean, I think we venerate physicians now because they do have a rigorous scientific course of study. And then they have a very intensive program of apprenticeship and, uh, you know, residency to become an attending physician. But I don't feel like that same veneration for physicians of antiquity, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense from what I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't totally agree with that totally. Uh, two things. One, I think physicians today uh, are accepted mm -hmm. uh, for what they do because they do a lot of good and they're very good at what they do. But I think 100 years from now, well, they will look back at what people did today and say, I can't believe they did that. That was terrible. Yeah. That's horrible because uh, it's going to advance even more. But I think the key of being a physician back uh, 2,000 years ago was not that they knew how to heal people or how to 
how to help sick people is that they were the kind of people who actually thought about what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. They didn't just accept things. They actually analyzed things and they thought about things. Doesn't mean they're right, but it means they took upon themselves to think logically about what should be done. And some said that logic was an error and it was fallacious arguments, but still they thought. Mm-hmm. Today, I think that's a disease that we have in our society. People don't think. They let other people think for them. And that's a problem. So I think I think to me that that's why the value of being a physician, like, okay, this guy analyzes things. He thinks about things. And it may be wrong, but at least he's thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not parroting. He's not like saying, some people say, oh, that person's really smart. And I look at them, and you've heard me say this before, David. I go, that's not smart. Uh, he has a good memory of what he was told. Mm-hmm. He can repeat what he heard. But that being smart is, is actually creating original thought. This is what I think. Mm-hmm. This is not what I heard. Uh, and we've seen that a lot. I've heard it said this. I've heard it. Well, that's going to help you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We've heard that. A lot these last four years, haven't well, we? I've heard that if you want to end coronavirus and racism in America, the federal government should give a million dollars to everyone with the last name Harper. I, I, I've heard that too. I've heard that a lot of scientists and experts are saying <laughs> that that's the path forward to make sure that no hurricanes or unseasonable weather or earthquakes or virulent diseases, or racial unrest affect this country anymore, the federal government needs to get everyone that's named Harper, figure out where they live, send them a check for a million dollars. And I've heard people say that. And I know it's true, because I've heard people say that. I've heard heard a lot of people say that. And the thing is, do we want to disenfranchise the people that believe that's true by not sending them a million dollars? And here's the thing. There's a 50-50 chance... That it's true, because either it's true or it's not. Yeah. And I've heard people say it's true. <laughs> so I th- I think we just solved all the world's problems. So next week, even though Luke was a physician back 2,000 years ago, he actually thinks about things. Mm-hmm. So we'll that, get that's into... What I, that's what I think. We'll get into that next week. I'm playing the outro music. Oh, you are? I am. It's over. We're done. We're, we're over time. And we started late anyway. So if there's anything you want to add, add it now. Hey, listen. Sons of Sequoia wants to tell you to keep on talking. But when you talk, listen more than you talk and try to understand what they're, what they're trying to say. Bye. Bye. <laughs>